Well, everyone, and welcome to a brand new edition of the S Factor, where it's all about science here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT and your favorite podcasting service. My name is Chuck Shazer from ScienceAnimated.net, and if you're into science and technology, this is your show. Some awesome discoveries, some new observations. Let's get right into it. If you're anything like me, you really enjoy looking up to the heavens. Now, have you ever been outside during the day, look up, and you see the moon? Have you ever wondered why that is, or maybe you never gave it much thought? So the question is, if Earth had no atmosphere, the moon would be visible all of the time, of course. So why is it only sometimes visible in daylight? Following from life science, the moon's presence in the night sky has transfixed people for millennia. But why is the moon sometimes visible during daylight? We sometimes see the moon during the day for the same reason we see it at night. It is reflecting light from the sun. And its closeness to Earth makes it brighter than the daytime or nighttime sky. After the sun, the moon is by far the brightest celestial object we can see. But the moon isn't always visible during the day. This is due to Earth's atmosphere and the orbital cycle of our natural satellite. If our planet didn't have an atmosphere, the moon would be visible from Earth all the time. Meanwhile, the phases of the moon mean that when it moves between Earth and the Sun, such as during the new moon, the illuminated side faces away from us, and the dark side of the moon faces Earth, making it basically invisible to sky watchers on Earth. Now the gas particles in our atmosphere, mainly nitrogen and oxygen, scatter light that has a short wavelength, such as blue and violet. This scattering, which involves absorbing and re-emitting light in a different direction, gives Earth a blue sky. In order to be visible during the daytime, the moon has to overcome the scattered light from the sun. Edward Ginnon, a professor of astronomy and astrophysics at Villanova University in Pennsylvania, told Live Science. For two or three days around the new moon, it is invisible to observers on Earth, as its position in the sky means the sun's scattered light outshines the moon. But as is usually the case, the moon's relative closeness to Earth, which is 238,900 miles on average, means that the light it reflects appears brighter to us than objects emitting or reflecting light which are farther away, such as stars or other planets. According to Guinean, the stars that are visible from Earth are a million billion times less bright than the light from the Sun, and millions of times fainter than that of the Moon. The scattered light from the Sun is so bright in our sky that it often overwhelms the starlight during the day, but not always the Moon's reflected light. Astronomers use surface brightness as a way of quantifying the apparent brightness of objects in the sky, such as galaxies or nebulae by measuring the amount of light they emit across an area of the night sky, as observed from Earth. Since the moon is closer to Earth than stars are, its surface brightness is greater than the surface brightness of the sky, Guinean explained, meaning we can easily see it shining during the daylight. Now, the moon's visibility during daylight is also influenced by other factors, including the seasons, the current phase of the moon, and how clear the sky is on a given day. The moon is visible during daylight for an average of 25 days out of the month throughout the year. The other five days occur around the new moon phase and the full moon. Near the new moon phase, it is too close to the sun to be seen. When it is near the full moon, it is only visible at night because the moon rises at sunset and sets at sunrise. The only day that it isn't visible in the sky with the sun 
for some time is the full moon. That day the sun sets and then the moon rises in the other way around. So that's the only day where it's not up there at the same time. The moon is above the horizon for about 12 hours a day, but its appearance may not always coincide with daylight hours. Now in winter, when days are shorter at mid-latitudes, for example, there is less time for the moon to be visible during the day. Now, if you want to check out the moon during the day, if you've never seen it or you want to catch it again, the best time to see the moon in daylight is during the first quarter, one week after the new moon, and third quarter, one week after the full moon. In the first quarter during the afternoon, our natural satellite can be seen rising in the eastern sky. In the third quarter, it will be visible in the morning, setting in the western sky. These phases are the longest periods that the moon is visible with the sun in the sky for an average of about five to six hours a day. Another phenomenon that affects when the moon is visible is earthshine. During the crescent phase, when it's close in angle to the sun, you can actually see the dark part of the moon, which you shouldn't see because of illuminated light. The dark part of the moon is getting reflected light from the earth. The best time to observe this phenomenon is during the crescent phase, three or four days after the new moon. For amateur moon gazers, Guinean suggests website that chart the lunar calendar showing when the moon rises and sets. You know, I remember when I was little, the first time I ever noticed the moon during daylight time, I was actually afraid. I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> Something has got to be wrong here, <laughs> but it's completely normal. And if you've ever seen it, it's pretty cool. Not too long ago, Disney released a trailer for the upcoming Ant-Man film. And of course, they talk about the quantum realm. The next story is going to talk about the quantum realm a little bit. Weird quantum effect that can turn matter invisible finally demonstrated. A weird quantum effect that was predicted decades ago has finally been demonstrated. If you could make a cloud of gas cold and dense enough, you can make it invisible. Scientists at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, use lasers to squeeze and cool lithium gas to densities and temperatures low enough that it scattered less light. If they can cool the cloud even closer to absolute zero, which is minus 459 degrees Fahrenheit, they say it will become completely invisible. The bizarre effect is the first ever specific example of a quantum mechanical process called polyblocking. What we've observed is one very special and simple form of polyblocking, which is that it prevents an atom from what all atoms would naturally do, scatter light. Study senior author Wolfgang Kettler, a professor of physics at MIT, said in a statement, this is the first clear observation that this effect exists. It shows a new phenomenon in physics. The new technique could be used to develop light-suppressing materials to prevent information loss in quantum computers. Polyblocking comes from the Pauli exclusion principle, first for formulated by the famous Australian physicist Wolfgang Pauli in 1925. Pauli said that all so-called fermion particles like protons, neutrons, and electrons with the same quantum state as each other cannot exist in the same space. Because at the spooky quantum level, there are only a finite number of energy states. This forces electrons and atoms to stack themselves into shelves of higher energy levels that orbit even farther around atomic nuclei. It also keeps the electrons of separate atoms apart from each other, because according to a 1967 paper co-authored by the famed physicist Freeman Dyson, without the exclusion principle, all atoms would collapse together while erupting in an enormous release of energy. 
These outcomes not only produce the startling variation of the elements of the periodic table, but also prevent our feet, when planted on the dirt, from falling through the ground, taking us tumbling into the Earth's center. The exclusion principle applies to atoms in a gas, too. Usually, atoms in a gas cloud have a lot of space to bounce around in, meaning that even though they may be fermions bound by the Pauli exclusion principle, there are enough unoccupied energy levels for them to jump into for the principle to not significantly impede their movement. Send a photon or light particle into a relatively warm gas cloud, and any atom it bumps into will be able to interact with it, absorbing its incoming momentum recoiling to a different energy level and scattering the photon away. But cool a gas down and you have a different story. Now the atoms lose energy, filling all of the lowest available states and forming a type of matter called a Fermi C. The particles are now hemmed in by each other, unable to move up to higher energy levels or drop down to lower ones. At this point, they're stacked in shells like seated concert goers in a solid and a sold out arena and have nowhere to go if it hit. They're so packed that the particles are no longer able to interact with light. Light that is sent in is polyblocked and will simply pass straight through. And whenever we control the quantum world, like in quantum computers, light scattering is a problem and means that information is leaking out of your quantum computer. This is one way to suppress light scattering and we're contributing to the general theme of controlling the atomic world. Now, I have read in the past that once we reach the stage of quantum computing, Cybersecurity is going to be almost impossible. So it's going to be very interesting to see as we learn more about quantum computers, how we can build them. But you want to talk about opening up a whole new world of technological advances, controlling things at the atomic level when it comes to quantum computing. I mean, that is, it's a game changer. Maybe we'll see quantum computing in our lifetime. If you listen to this show, The S yes Factor, every month, you know I have a particular fondness when it comes to talking about artificial intelligence. Because there are companies working on this technology day and night. And eventually, they will have some form of sentient AI. We're not there yet. Following from Vice, Meta's AI chief publishes paper on creating autonomous artificial intelligence. Yan LeCun, VP and AI chief at Meta, has published a new paper laying out his vision for autonomous AIs that can learn and experience the world in a more human-like way than today's machine learning models. In the nearly 70 years since AI was first introduced to the public, machine learning has exploded in popularity and has since grown to dizzying heights. Yet, despite how quickly we've come to rely on the power of computing, one question has haunted the field for almost as long as its inception. Could these superintelligent systems one day gain enough sentience to match or even surpass humanity? Despite some dubious recent claims, for example, the ex-Google engineer who claimed a chatbot had gained sentience before being fired, one of the biggest barriers to a robot overlord situation is the simple fact that compared to animals and humans, current AI and machine learning systems are lacking in reason a concept essential to the development of autonomous machine intelligence systems. That is, AI that can learn on the fly directly from observations of the real world rather than lengthy training sessions to perform a specific task. Now, new research published earlier this month in the openreview.net by Lacan proposes a way to fix this issue by training lear learning algorithms to learn more efficiently, as AI has proven 
that it isn't very good at predicting and planning for changes in the real world. On the flip side, humans and animal counterparts are able to gain enormous amounts of knowledge about how the world works through observation and with remarkably little physical interaction. Now, Lacan, besides leading AI efforts at Meta, is also a professor at New York University, has spent his storied career developing learning systems that many modern AI applications rely on today. In trying to give these machines better insight into how the world operates, he could arguably be hailed as the father of the next generation of AI. In 2013, he went on to found the Facebook AI Research Group, Meta's first foray in experimenting with AI research, before stepping down to become the company's chief AI scientist a few years later. Now, since then, Meta has varying levels of success in trying to dominate the ever-growing field. In 2018, their researchers trained an AI to replicate eyeballs in hopes of making it easier for users to edit their digital photos. Now, teenagers can learn to drive with a few dozen hours of repetition and without trying out a crash for themselves. But machine learning systems, on the other hand, have to be trained with insanely large amounts of data before it could accomplish the same task. A car would have to run off cliffs multiple times before it realizes it's a bad idea, says Lacan, when he presented his work at UC Berkeley on Tuesday, and then another few thousands of times before it realizes how not to run off the cliff. That distinction, Lacan went on to note, resides in that humans and animals are capable of common sense. While the concept of common sense can pretty much be boiled down to having practical judgment, Lacan describes it in the paper as a collection of models that can help a living, living being infer the difference between what's likely, what's possible, and what's impossible. Such a skill allows a person to explore their environment, filling in missing information, as well as imagine new solutions to unknown problems. Still, it does seem as though we take the gift of common sense for granted, as scientists haven't yet been able to imbue AI and machine learning algorithms with any of these capabilities. During the same talk, Lacan also pointed out that many modern training processes like reinforcement learning techniques, a method of trained based on rewarding favorable behaviors and punishing undesired ones, aren't up to snuff when it comes to matching human reliability in real-world tasks. It's a practical problem because we really want machines with common sense. We want self-driving cars. We want domestic robots. We want intelligent virtual assistants, Lacan said. So with the aim of advancing AI research over the next decade, Lacan's paper proposes an architecture that would work to minimize the number of actions a system needs to take to successfully learn and carry out an assigned task. Much like how varying sections of the brain are responsible for different functions of the body, Lacan suggests a model for spawning autonomous intelligence that would be composed of five separate yet configurable modules. One of the most complex parts of the proposed architecture, the world model module, would work to estimate the state of the world as well as predict imagined actions and other world sequences, much like a simulator. But by using this single world model engine, knowledge about how the world operates can be easily shared across different tasks. In some ways, it might resemble memory. That said, there's still a lot of hard work to be done before autonomous systems can learn to deal with uncertain situations. But in a world as chaotic and unpredictable as ours, it's an issue we doubt we'll have to address sooner than later. Meta did not respond to a request for comment about the work. Now, Meta, of course, if you're not familiar with that, it is the name that Facebook 
changed to over the last couple of years that happened. But Facebook has been working. That's one of the companies that I'm talking about when I say these companies are working around the clock to master this technology. Google is another one. They have Google DeepMind. Remember, it's much like what Mark Cuban said. Whoever creates true AI first will become the world's first trillionaire. And I believe that. What do you think about this story or any of the stories I've talked about today on the S-Factor? Do you have any comments or questions? You can reach out to me through email. Just email me at info at scienceanimated.net. Info at scienceanimated.net. I would love to know what you think about all of this AI stuff. Are you concerned about it? Are you looking forward to it? You know, it's like any new technological advancement, even at the current levels that we have. There are advantages and there's pros and cons to it, just like any form of technology. But it will get here and we will have to adjust to it. It's just a matter of time. How much time before true artificial intelligence arrives? That's anyone's guess. This next story from Scientific American is very interesting. The brain interprets smell like the notes of a song. How do humans and other animals distinguish between the smell of rotting seafood or the enticing allure of a ripe banana? New research at the New York University Langone Health and their colleagues uses artificially created odors to help reveal the intricate chain of events that allow one odor to be distinguished from another. The results were published in Science. In the deep recesses of the nose are millions of sensory neurons that, along with our eyes and ears, help conjure the world around us. When stimulated by a chemical with a smell or an odorant, they send nerve impulses to thousands of clusters of neurons in the glomeruli, which make up the olfactory bulb, the brain's smell center. Different patterns of, of glomerul activation are known to generate the sensation of specific odors. Firing one set of, of glomeruli elicits the perception of pineapples. Firing another evokes pickles. Unlike other sensations, such as sight and hearing, Scientists do not know which qualities of a particular smell are used by the brain to perceive it. When you see a person's face, you may remember the eyes, which helps you recognize that individual in the future. But the ears and nose might be less important in how the brain re represents that person. The authors of the new study sought to identify distinguishing features involved in forming the representation of odors in the brain. And do you know that your sense of smell has the best recall, the olfactory system has the best recall of all. So in other words, if you remember your great aunt, let's just say, and let's say she passed away many years ago, but she wore a particular perfume. Every time you smell that perfume, you will think of your great aunt every single time. It has the biggest impact on our memories, that olfactory system. Now, the authors of the new study sought to identify the, the distinguishing features involved informing the representation of odor. So what they did was they used a technique called optogenetics to activate the glomeruli in mice. Optogenetics also uses the light to stimulate specific neurons in the brain, and it can help determine the function of particular brain regions. Now, by activating certain patterns of activity glomeruli, the researchers generated synthetic smells that the mice perceived as real. They first trained the rodents to recognize the switching on of six specific glomeruli. 
causing them to perceive an odor that was unknown to the researchers. The mice received a water reward when they recognized the correct smell and received water from a spout. When other glomeruli were activated, generating a different color, there was no reward. The study authors then altered the timing of mix of activated glomeruli and observed how doing so affected the mice's behavior. This step allowed them to determine how important each glomerulus was to accurately recognizing the smell. They found the sequence of glomerular activation was crucial to odor perception. When they changed which glomerulus was activated first, the mice demonstrated a 30% drop in the ability to see the correct odor. When they changed the last one activated, there's a 5% reduction in detection ability. Now, Dimitri Rinberg, a neuroscientist at NYU Lagon, likens smell perception to the melody of a song. The notes, in this case representing activated glomeruli, are important. But without the right timing, the song or the perceptual experience falls apart. Changing the seventh note of a melody might be unnoticeable. Swapping the first two might result in a new tune altogether. When we smell, it is not only about which glomeruli are activated, but also what time sequence they follow. Now, Harvard University biology professor Vekatesh N. Murthy, who specializes in the neuroscience of olfactory and was not involved in the study, points out that there is a large body of evidence relating patterns of glomerular act activation to smell perception. The uncertainty has been whether high brain regions read these activation patterns to identify a smell, as well as how important the odor of activation is. Now, Reinberg, Reinberg hopes to carry his research more deeply into the brain to see how other regions of the organ aid in per perceiving odors and objects once they receive information from the olfactory bulb. We're one step closer to the movie The Matrix, he jokes. The film features a world seeded to intelligent computers that regulate humans to a shared simulated reality created in their brain, similar to the way the researchers devised an artificial odor. In a sense, we recreated the movie with smell. Now think about this a second. Think about the applications for something like this. You sit down in your recliner in your living room and you watch a movie. And let's say you have a really great surround system. You can have a big screen that you're watching the movie on. And you can have these wonderful speakers with the 5.1 Dolby digital surround sound. You can have all of that and be really into the movie and, and feel the thud of, you know, an explosion that's happening in the movie or a car crash or, you know, if you're watching a superhero flick, you know, a fight sequence. But could you imagine sitting there and smelling what's in the scene? Like if something in the movie was burning or, or if you're watching, uh, let's say you're watching Emeril Lagasse and you can actually, like he used to joke about years ago, having smell-o-vision so you could smell his food. This research could potentially lead to a technology that would know how to excite those neurons, replicate an odor that we're familiar with, and we could actually experience that as we're watching a movie, for example, or television. Could you imagine such, such technology? Well, that will happen. So that's where research like this can lead, and not only movies, but games and things like that, or any kind of a virtual reality world, like what Facebook has been working on. Incredible stuff here, folks. I'm sure you're all very aware of Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin. That is a venture in which he hopes to take citizens to the upper atmosphere, right to the edge of space there. Well, he isn't the only one that has space tourism 
goals in mind, following from space.com, all aboard the spaceship Neptune, flying to the edge of space on a balloon. Imagine traveling high enough to see the curvature of the Earth against the blackness of space. Not in a brief, high-adrenaline rocket ride, but a luxurious and leisurely balloon flight up into the stratosphere. That's the experience a company called Space Perspective is hoping to offer aspiring space tourists with their spaceship Neptune balloon currently under development. Space Perspective hopes to begin commercial flights in 2024 with paying passengers expected to pay about $125,000 apiece for the opportunity. The company has already started accepting seat reservations. Now, if I if memory serves me correctly, I think that's about the price that Jeff Bezos charges. Not exactly targeting the average American, I wouldn't say, with that price tag, but I guess it's, depending on how it goes, if they create more of those things, it becomes cheaper. I guess it will be available to the rest of us here. Now, despite its name, Spaceship Neptune won't actually reach space, which officially starts at the Kármán line, 62 miles above the Earth's surface. When a balloon is filled with low-density gas, such as hydrogen or helium, the resulting buoyancy causes it to rise up through the atmosphere, because the balloon is lighter than the volume of air it displaces. As it rises higher and higher, the surrounding gas gets thinner and thinner, and eventually the balloon is confronted by Archimedes' principle, which halts the ascent when the ambient density is the same as its own. For a balloon like Spaceship Neptune, this will happen around an altitude of 20 miles. Fortunately, from the point of view of the passengers carried by the balloon, this is just a technicality. Even from an altitude of 20 miles, they'll be able to see the blackness of space above them and the spherical Earth below them, in a view not too different from that at the Kármán line. And thanks to the Archimedes principle, once they reach their peak altitude, they will just float there rather than falling back to Earth like a suborbital rocket. This permits a much longer experience with Space Perspective proposing six-hour missions, two hours ascending through the stratosphere, two hours floating at maximum altitude, and two hours descending to a gentle splashdown in the ocean. The company made a successful uncrewed test flight from NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida in 2021. Although Spaceship Neptune won't reach the Kármán line, it will go above another key boundary called the Armstrong Line. Located around 12 miles altitude, the air pressure here is so low that water boils at normal body temperature. In order to survive, this means humans need either a spacesuit or a pressurized cabin. Fortunately for Space Perspective's customers, Spaceship Neptune will be equipped with the latter, in the form of a state-of-the-art capsule suspended beneath the balloon. But it isn't the kind of cramped, utilitarian capsule normally associated with space travel. It's both spacious and luxurious, giving the occupants 360-degree panoramic views. The interior will be maintained at a comfortable temperature using a thermal control system and reflective coatings on the outside surface to minimize solar heating. For even greater passenger comfort, the cabin will include reclining seats and couches, mood lighting, and even food and beverage services. Now, what do you think about this balloon trip to space? They plan in two years to be using this technology and make this a reality. Would you go on a space balloon trip? and just float there for a couple of hours and come back down at a comfortable two-hour drift down into and splash into the ocean. Would you be interested in that? <laughs> I want to know what you think. Email me, info at scienceanimated.net. 
send me a message. Let me know what you think about space tourism. Would you do it? Do you think it's worth the money? By the way, if you're looking for a early Christmas present, we still have some time left here. It's the beginning of November. Why not get at least one present out of the way early? My movie, Science Animated, The Human Body, available as a DVD or a stream, is available now at scienceanimated.net. It's a family-friendly 40-minute DVD. Kids love it. Coast-to-coast parents, teachers, homeschoolers. I've got letters emailed to me. It's a great thing to know that so many people enjoy this film. I've actually been busy shipping these out as we speak. So get your copy today at scienceanimated.net or visit my Facebook page, facebook.com slash scienceanimated, and you can pick up a copy there as well. And if you're local in the Vineland area, Ardry's Photo Quick on Main and Vine Road in Vineland. It's available there and also at the Quick Loop Station on Main Road as well. Check me out on YouTube, youtube.com slash science animated education. Lots of great animation there to check out. The human body film is not available on YouTube to view for free. That is only available on the DVD and as a stream. And I thank you in advance for your support. Speaking of my science educational animations, right now there is How Do Volcanoes Work? That's one of my newer animations. That's available on the YouTube channel. And you can also reach me, uh, you can also reach the YouTube channel through my Facebook page, facebook.com slash science animated. For all you animal lovers out there, all you pet owners, have you ever watched your dog or cat sleep and they kind of like, they're out, they are asleep and they start like twitching and you think to yourself, what the heck are they dreaming about? Well, This according to National Geographic, animals dream too, and here's what we know. We still don't know exactly why humans dream or why dreams might be important. Studying animal dreams is even harder. Dogs can't tell us what made them whine or run during a snooze. Depending on how one defines them, animal dreams could have intriguing implications. I think dreaming gives us a way of extending a number of cognitive capabilities to animals. That includes things like emotion, memory... And even imagination, says David M. Pina Guzman, who studies the philosophy of science at San Francisco State University and recently authored When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness. We know primates have emotions, but consider spiders, which a recent study suggests may experience REM-like sleep and even visual dreams. The thought of spider dreams sounds outlandish, but it may be true. We have this idea of dreams being a confabulatory narrative with kind of crazy vivid elements to it, says Matthew Wilson, a neurobiologist at MIT. But when we look into animal models, we're simply trying to understand what goes on during sleep that might influence learning, memory, and behavior. Domestic cats were some of the first animals subjected to dream research. Michael Juvet, a pioneer of sleep studies, uncovered evidence of feline dreaming in the 1960s when he observed cats' behavior while they slept and then altered it dramatically. Now, in REM sleep, human muscles don't move much, despite the intense mental activity that powers our dreams. The state of Atonia ensures the body doesn't act out our dreams no matter how real they seem. Juvet learned that in cats, a brainstem structure called the pons seemed to regulate REM sleep and produce partial paralysis. By removing parts of the pons, however, Juvet caused a dramatic change in behavior. With their brains deep in REM sleep, the cats began to move as if awake, hunting, jumping, grooming, and aggressively defending themselves against invisible threats. 
Juvet called this period paradoxal sleep, when the body is still but the mind remains fully active. This provided a window into what was happening in the cat's sleeping brains. The cats perform behaviors that are very easy to interpret as mapping onto a waking experience. Now, zebrafish also experience REM-like sleep, according to Stanford neurobiologist Philippine Moraine. While sleeping, these fish lose muscle tone, develop arrhythmic heartbeats, and show brain activity that looks like that of an awake fish. One notable difference from humans, though, not other animals, was that the fish didn't move their eyes nor lacking eyelids did they close them. The findings suggest that REM sleep, the state which most dreams occur, may have evolved at least 450 million years ago before land and aquatic animals diverged in their evolution. 20 years ago, people would tell me fish don't even sleep, says Moran. Now we see those behavioral features are conserved from insects to spiders and invertebrates. And in REM sleep, you lose control of your most vital regulatory systems. Evolution would not have conserved such a fragile state if it didn't matter. But why does dreaming matter? Does REM sleep conservation across evolution mean that even fish might dream? That depends on your definition of dreaming. For Moraine, dreaming is best explained as simply the shuffling of synaspis, or in other words, a reset of the neural connections that prepares our nervous system for the coming day through processes like memory, consolidation, and cognition optimization. I would not be surprised if actual dreams were found in animals, and I think eventually we'll be able to show that scientifically, he says. You did something in the daytime, and your brain will replay it, integrate it, and mix it with other experiences. We're not the only species capable of remembering and learning. So it seems like they don't have concrete evidence that animals dream yet. But with this ongoing research, I'm sure they're on the cusp of proving that. I want to thank you very much for joining me today on the S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. If you enjoy science and technology news, if you enjoy education, if you enjoy wholesome family entertainment, please check out my website, ScienceAnimated.net. And if you're looking for a present, Science Animated Human Body DVD or stream is available for less than it costs you for lunch, actually. You can have a Christmas present set aside. You get that part of your shopping done. That is available. And also check me out online in general. You can check me out at facebook.com slash science animated, twitter.com slash science animated, youtube.com slash science animated education. If you dig this radio show, you can check out all the past S factors in podcast form available on my website, scienceanimated.net, or your favorite podcasting service, whether that's Apple, Google, Spotify, Tuned In, Amazon Prime Podcasts. I'm on all of them. Just type in Science Animated Education and I'll pop right up. Subscribe to the YouTube and the, and the podcast. Never miss anything that I put out, any educational content. You'll be right on top of all the new stuff that comes out. I wish everyone an awesome, amazing Thanksgiving. And I'll see you with a brand new show next month right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT. You can catch me here the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock. Until next time, everyone, be safe and stay curious. You have been listening to The S Factor, where it's all about science, right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT, brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net. Take care, everybody.